Hello and a warm welcome to My Big Story, the podcast where seemingly ordinary people share their extraordinary tales. I'm your host, Mike Malone, and my guest today is Renee Overett, who was the rare American to play in the famed varsity rugby match between Oxford and Cambridge in England. Renee, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good, good, good. Uh, so for listeners who don't follow rugby, I, this would kind of be like an English guy playing in the Harvard-Yale football game? Yeah, very similar to that. It's a, you know, or back when I played, it was a not very well popularized sport in the United States and, it, and then going to a country where it's extremely popular and yep. trying to fit in. Okay. So what year did you play in this match? Um, I was at Oxford in 06, 07, and the match was in March 07. Okay. Okay. So I, I likened it to the English guy playing in the Harvard-Yale game, and, and that would be him playing quarterback because you were a scrum half, correct? That is correct. Very good comparison. And in uh, both positions, the quarterback and the scrum half, I think, like to talk a lot and – yeah, that's a pretty accurate characteristic of me. Okay. And tell us a little bit more about the scrum half and what the scrum half does. Sure. So akin to football, it is um, the person who calls the plays on the field. So in rugby, there are eight forwards and then six backs plus the scrum half. So it makes mm -hmm. a total of seven players on the field. And if you have ever seen rugby or are somewhat familiar with it, um, the forwards are sometimes known as the big broody people that go around and bash people. And the backs are more known as the um, speedier, prettier players who toss the ball around. Okay. And the scrum half is the liaison between the two positions um, and, you know, gets the, the workhorses to do their thing and then distributes the ball to the backs and uh, they do their thing. Okay. Got it. And what made you want to study at Oxford? I had done a semester abroad in London as an undergrad and absolutely loved it. Prior, prior to that, when I was about 14 years old, my parents took us on a family vacation to London and at that moment fell in love with the country. Uh, my grandparents had visited London many times and very fond of it as well. So that the trip caused me to want to study abroad. And then studying abroad always sparked this desire to go back. And um, at one point I was thinking about work opportunities there, but with work opportunities, there's no real end date. And um, when it was time, when I decided that uh, the time was right for me to pursue an MBA, I started looking at international schools, thinking that that would be a definitive period of time. If I wanted to stay, I could, but you know, it'd give me the opportunity to get back to England. Okay. So going back to when you were a kid and you went over for the first time or first two times, what did you like about England? I think just, you know, the grandioseness, I don't think grandioseness is a word, um, but like how everything was steeped in history in a way that the United States um, not wasn't, but it was different. The monarchy was so prevalent there. The castles, um, you know, everything along the Thames, Big Ben, it just was so 
beautiful and it had such um, such a presence in a city. Um, I grew up in Boston, which you know, while it is, or I grew up in the suburb of Boston, while that is an old city and absolutely has a lot of character, it's just such a different visual. So I think that that, you know, really attracted me. Again, my grandparents, my grandmother often talks as if we are part of the British monarchy still to this day, uh, you know, is the queen coming, things like that. So I always just felt this connection through, through my grandparents, through my family, and then getting there, it was, it was a really great opportunity uh, as a as a young teenager. So, with your grandparents, do they have English uh, roots? No, no, abs- no, nothing. I mean, okay. <laughs> they have. My grandmother uh, has a plate of the Queen's. Uh, what is it called? It's a picture of the Queen something. But uh, she has recently given it to me, so now I, I have this picture of a plate or a plate with a picture of the queen on it okay. so for that on ebay you think how much yeah i mean if i had sold it if i'd had it and sold it prior to my mba at least my education oh really okay. yeah <laughs> or like 1099 <laughs> all right so do you find that that uh, 15 or so years later like you're still following uh the, the royalty and, and all the the sort of craziness going on with with the royals over there i mean i'm definitely enamored by it in a way that i probably shouldn't admit i i think it's just the royal what it stands for and what it is you know at the highest outmost level is so interesting and 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 different i you know all the things that have been uncovered in the past few years and the details that we've learned about obviously paints a picture that is much deeper than we originally knew, but it's just such a different form of governance than what we're used to here in the States that there's almost a little bit of like fairy tale atmosphere to it. You know, the princesses and queens and I, I never was really into that, but the fact that it's reality and, you know, translates, I think that, I think it's really cool. So I still kind of know what's going on. I did watch the, uh, Meghan Markle interview or most of it. I think I fell asleep, but um, yeah, I think it's cool. So back to rugby, you played before you went over to Oxford. Yep. Started playing in college. Yep. So I had about eight years under my belt before I went over. Okay. And where'd you play in college? I played at Ithaca College okay. in upstate New York. Okay. And tell me how you first, you first started playing at Ithaca then. Yep. I first started playing at Ithaca. Um, So coming out of high school, I was a soccer player and a tennis player. I knew I didn't want to play soccer. I um, tried to walk on as a tennis player and didn't. Mm -hmm. And I guess I had seen someone on campus with a rugby jacket, mentioned this to my father, and he encouraged me to check out rugby. Mm. And... I, next time I saw someone with a rugby jacket, I said, you know, I'm interested. And she told me when practice was and I showed up. Um, So I actually asked my father to confirm this story today. What I've told you was slightly different than what I thought it was, but most of it checks out. And, you know, asked him like, why did you tell me to play rugby? As a father, I think it's a father's job to dissuade his daughter from playing or his son from playing rugby, no? Right. And he just said, 
Like I wanted you to be active and find a community at college. So I mean, that's kind of cool. And then I asked him, did you think I'd still be so involved? And, you know, in short, he was just like, no, not at all. (laughs) Okay. Um, So uh, after college, you found, you moved on to New York city and, and found a club there. Yep. Uh, yep, that's true. I almost stopped playing rugby. That was, um, you know, a huge, a huge uh, turning point in my life that, you know, occasionally I think back, like, what if I had actually stopped playing rugby and my life would be completely different, I think. Um, but I did, I did continue playing after college. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what, what uh, how'd you end up as scrum half way back when? Um... I actually have no idea. Um, I started playing scrum half my sophomore year. When I started freshman year, um, I was much smaller and faster than I am today. Mm-hmm. And they like needed a fullback. I think at the first game, only 14 people showed up and they're like, yeah, she's fast. Um, I had a good foot from soccer. Yeah, I catch really well. Um, but... Yeah, and then when I was a freshman, the the senior class, the class was very, the team was very senior heavy, so they all graduated, and I think just by default, no, I feel like I feel like the captain at one point had told me like everyone's graduating, you'd probably be a good scrum half, and I was like okay, okay, it's not very monumental, um, but I like scrum half a lot, so I'm glad I'm glad it stuck. Yeah. So we, we, girls don't really play football growing up. So I, I wonder, like, you know, for a lot of guys who played football, it's it's somewhat natural to just throw themselves at a ball carrier's legs and, and initiate some violence. So was that difficult for you not coming from contact sports to suddenly have to, like, tackle people in the open field? Um, so the first thing you should know about me is I will always – try to avoid tackling someone in the open field and tell somebody else to do it unless I absolutely have to. Okay. I think that started at a young age. (laughs) So, um, I, I remember learning to tackle and it being so foreign to me Mm. and understanding that there is a methodology to it. And it was a lot about mechanics and I, I coached rugby, um, for a number of years as well. I coached college rugby at Fordham and, you know, now you teach the mechanics, but I remember back then that being very useful, like, oh, if I put my head here and put my shoulder here and push like this and pull like this, somebody's just going to fall down because they can't stand up. Yeah. Um, it was really hard getting that mechanics in practice when there was a grown woman running at me as fast as possible, trying not to get to the ground. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, as I've played on for years and years and occasionally get on the field, it's, you know, it's back to the mechanics. If I'm going to tackle someone, they're going to go down. Like I'm not, I can't, I can't put that toll on my body to Mm -hmm. not get it right the first time. So going back to Oxford, um, before you head over there, do, do you like email the coach and say, Hey, I'm coming over. I'd like to play. Or uh, how do you sort of, or do you just show up at the first practice and say you're on the team? So I had no idea what to expect because I was a grad student. I was getting my MBA. 
going to play a collegiate sport, which in the United States, not allowed. In England, great, you know, Mm -hmm. fully allowed. I had no idea if I was like walking into a D1 sport, what the equivalent was, how that worked. Again, I was, you know, going for an MBA. So all of my research on schools had been exhausted on that. Um, I had emailed the captain and was in touch with her. And she was just like, hey, like, sure, I'll meet you for practice. I'll meet you and I'll show you where practice is. And that's kind of how it went. I mean, it was less formal than what I imagine a varsity sport in the United States would be like at any level, but it was definitely a much more formalized experience than any rugby um, exposure I had had in the United States. Yeah. Okay. So were there other Americans on the team? So our coach was American, um, former Eagle Matt Sherman. And there was another woman, Elaine Gelman, on the team who was the other sole American. Okay. Okay. And uh, leading up to Oxford, Cambridge, how big a deal is this? I mean, this goes back probably a couple hundred years or so, huh? Yeah, give or take. Um, (laughs) The Oxford-Cambridge rivalry is huge in everything, like not just sports. Uh, Oxford is obviously the better academic institution, but on the field also, we are the better team. On the water, the better rowers, you know, better on the court. It's a huge rivalry. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as sports go, the varsity match, which is the Oxford-Cambridge match, is, you know, quote unquote, the only one that matters. We had a season. I can't tell you much about season. Like, we probably did all right. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we won some. I know we didn't win some. But I know we won the varsity match. Okay. And, you know, everything else leads up to that. Okay. Oxford, Cambridge, Oxford won the match that you played in, yeah? We won 37 to 7. Oh, a convincing win. Okay. And and you got into the game? I did. I uh, came in the second half. Okay. At scrum half. And were you expecting to play or you're happy to sort of get the, the nod? I was expecting to play. Um, I had previously started for the team uh, early in the season. And then as the NBA program progressed and became more demanding, I, my commitment to rugby was less so because I was committed to my education. So, you know, rightfully so I missed practices and games and rightfully so I was replaced as scrum half and, I would like to think that's the reason I don't want to, I don't want to blow my ego. And the other woman, uh, the other scrum half was extremely talented. So, you know, maybe she was the better player than me, but I'd like to think it was just because my MBA. Um, but yeah, so I got in the match in the second half and, um, was able to score. So five of those 37 points are mine. Oh my gosh. So that, that is known as a try in rugby and, uh, it's, it's like a touchdown in football. And tell us about the try. Was it a 98-meter dash down the pitch? Well, you know, as mentioned, I did play fullback, and they're known for running fast. But, no, this one was probably about a, uh, a three-meter, you know, shuffle dive across the line. Okay. Um, you know, for to relate back to American football, and I, you know – I'm in Boston now. I I am a New York Giants fan, but I know too much about Patriots. But, you know, it's it's a 
quarterback sneak. It's the Tom Brady sneak. So there was a, either a scrum or a breakdown play, a ruck. So, you know, that's, that's when the ball is on the ground in some way and players are trying to use their feet to either get it to the back of the scrum and in the scrum half's hands or to the back of the ruck and in the scrum half's hands. And from that position, the scrum half can either pass it, um, which is the typical move, or yeah. they can run with it, which is less typical because there's usually a lot of defenders on the other side. Yeah. Um, so I was very close to the try line and knew I could pick it up and probably just dive over and score, uh, which is what happened. And that's okay. what I did. Tell me about the feeling. You guys are winning by a lot, but it must have felt pretty awesome, I would think, huh? Yeah, I mean, it, it was cool being able to play in the game was an honor and being able to contribute to our win um, in terms of points was an honor. You know, it's, I think I probably questioned throughout that time, whether I had an impact on the team because I wasn't as committed as I could have been. So, you know, even though we were winning decisively, I'm sure, you know, just being able to quote unquote, prove my worth being part of that team having the opportunity to step on the field and, you know, cherry on the top, being able to score. It was, it was really cool. And somewhere in the depths of probably Facebook, I have a picture of that score. And the next time I see it, I'm going to download it because <laughs> I can't find it to save my life. Okay. So as an American over there and, and being in a leadership position at Scrum Half, did you find that people kind of, respected you and listened to you or that there was more a case of yeah yank whatever you're you're saying forget about i'm sure nobody had any idea what i was saying with a mouth guard in and with you know my american accent like i have absolutely no idea if they knew what i was saying to this day um or just screaming things with i'm a big gesture on the field at scrum half also because you can't hear a lot so you know at least i had hand gestures going to me going for me um but you got to remember like I was 26 years old when I was playing the, the majority of the team was 18 to 21. Yeah. They're kids. So, you know, by nature of age and maturity, I had, and you know, I'd been in the workforce. I had um, had other leadership, you know, positions on and off the field. Like I had learned a little bit about leadership Mm -hmm there were a lot of talented players who had been playing, you know, longer than eight years because they started when they were really little, but I'd like to think that, you know, there, there was some perception of leadership um, or my ability to control the field. Okay. So when the match is over, obviously rugby is uh, well known for, for the home team hosting the visiting team and drinking a few beers. Was there a a banquet or a couple beers or what happens after the game? Yeah, there was definitely an after, um, after match dinner. So we stayed overnight, you know, got cleaned up and were able to, or not were able to, went to this nice dinner, uh, sit down dinner. And then apparently we uh, went out clubbing in Cambridge. Apparently. I say this because I actually uh, checked in with Elaine before and I was like, you need, I need some, uh, some details filled in. It's been a long uh, 14 years. So she assured me that we had a great night on the town. Okay. Which I guess if I don't remember, I had a great night on the town. Probably a, a good sign. Okay. So for, for playing in the match, do you get like a commemorative jersey or any sort of keepsake after playing? Yeah. So um, we got a few things. We got we got 
uh, normal swag kit, we were able to purchase, um, you know, warm ups and shirts and things like that. But for playing in the match, we all got our own jersey. So I have a jersey with my name on the back of it, which is pretty cool. I keep saying uh, one day I'm going to get that my Lions jersey and then my college jersey framed and put on a wall. But I don't live in a very big place, so I don't really have that wall space still someday. Um, But we also got uh, an Oxford Blues scarf for being a Blues player. And this is the itchiest wool scarf I've ever seen in my entire life. Like to the point of not being wearable? Yeah. Like I have never worn this thing. I still have it, but, you know, it wouldn't last two seconds around my neck. And I got a really cool beer mug. So oh, cool. those are those are the things I got for free. And then I bought some swag. With the beer mug, is it something you still quaff out of now and then? I, I've i moved recently. It, it has not made it out of the box this time. Okay. But um, in the apartment, though, it's in the apartment. And it used to be um, I've got a couple other mugs from, you know, rugby playing days. So college and um, one post college and they were they're on a shelf. I mean. They're kind of, they're keepsakes. They're good memories. So I've stopped, stopped drinking out of them long ago. Okay. So how long were you over in Oxford for? Was it one year? A full year. Yep. Okay. And how challenging was the MBA program? It, it was challenging. Um, I don't think I realized just how challenging it was. I mean, it was a one-year program, so it was pretty intense. Um, For the past, since my MBA, so for the past 13 years, I've actually done, had a side hustle of MBA admission consulting. So I'm much more familiar with the MBA process, much more familiar with a lot of schools. I have no idea how I got into Oxford based on what I know now. Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I went to Ithaca College as an undergrad. Great liberal arts program, not Ivy League. Yeah. Um, I was always a good student, but I was essentially, I, I essentially, I went to the best university in the world for my MBA. So I do remember when I went being like, holy crap, I'm not prepared to go to like the Harvard of Europe. Right. Um, but it, great experience that I passed. I graduated. That's the goal. That's the goal. And, uh, I don't think I, I didn't fail anything. So <laughs> that was also good. Well, the, the Oxford MBA stands out on the resume, but are you ever like in a job interview and, and somebody like somehow the, the varsity match comes up? Yeah. If whenever I have the opportunity to like chat with someone who's British, like if it's in an interview or, you know, a guy at a bar or something, um, I always bring it up because, yeah. you know, sometimes you get a job, sometimes you get a free drink. Um <laughs> But I do in, in the first, the first job I had um, coming back after my MBA was at Lehman Brothers, mm-hmm. which we all know how that ended. Right. Um, but one of the, I think it was my hiring manager, but I vividly remember one of the people I interviewed with, we talked um, in length about the Oxford MBA, uh, sorry, my Oxford blue, because he was British at that point, it was on my resume you know, as a talking point. So it worked. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So when we were chatting before this, uh, you you mentioned maybe not your big story, but your pretty big story. And it it involved a chicken costume and and some free food. Why don't you tell us about that? 
Yeah. So that might be my, my life's greatest accomplishment, uh, to be honest. Um, so a couple things to know about me. I like free things. Mm-hmm. Um, I like winning and I really like costumes. So the, I live in Boston now and, um, this local restaurant called the chicken and rice guys. So they have a bunch of food carts and a couple brick and mortars every year uh, they hosted this race and it was a 2.62 mile race. Um, and the winners received free meals for a year mm. and the winners were fastest male, fastest female and best costume. So when I saw this, I was like, Oh yeah, <laughs> I can do best costume. <laughs> and I convinced two friends to run it with me and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah well, we'll put, we'll wear costumes too. No problem. That morning I found out they had no intention to ever wear a costume and didn't have one. I quickly made them chicken hats, Oh, geez. but I devised this. I mean, I sent you the picture, this extravagant chicken costume, full on thick feathers made out of, you know, boas and ran this 2.62 mile race in, you know, the middle of humid May. It was very hot and humid that day. Um, I had big chicken feet on. Did not win, but I did win best. I did not win the race, but I won best costume. Nice. And then I decided that I wanted to equate this to prize money. So that I, so I wanted to say I won $1,000 running a race. So mm-hmm. I told myself in a year, I was going to eat $1,000 worth of food. And you know, their meals are like eight bucks each. Yeah. So for a year, I ate there like more or less every day. And, <laughs> you know, earned, I earned $1,000. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So well, while you're running, did you see other costumes where you said, oh, man, that, that's a good costume. I'm, I'm up for a pretty good competition here. Um, there's really only one challenger um, that I knew was my competition. And other, other than him, I knew I kind of had it in the bag. Um, so I guess that's, you know, conceited Renee talking. But I, I do pretty well with costumes in general. So, okay. So are you still playing rugby now and then or those days over? So I play touch rugby informally in Boston. Uh, We're hoping to formalize a little bit once there's tournaments again. And um, I still play with uh, Heat, so Hot Even After 30, which is the New York City Village Lions old girl side. So we play once a year. Okay. The last time we played was... um, February 2020, so just be- just before COVID, yeah. for the 20th anniversary of the women's team, uh, we went down to New Orleans and played in a tournament there. Okay. So people that you had played with many, many years before, huh? I mean, full spectrum. People, you know, there were people there that started the club and people who had just joined it. So it was a fantastic experience to really, it, it was intergenerational play. Like a lot of times with Heat, it is just playing what he decided even after 30. So as we age, there's more and more people on the roster, yeah. but when it started, it was typically people that, you know, had played during my tenure with the club and you know, the 20th anniversary was really cool because it was such a spectrum of, of players through the years. Right. Right. So we're earning that, that Oxford blue, I hope I'm saying it right. Um, yep. Is that a memory that you will kind of hold on to for the rest of your time on earth? Do you think? 
Yeah, probably in the afterlife too, even though I don't think I believe in that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot of things I think that one can do in their life that, you know, could be perceived as not commonplace that, that many other people do, but it, it really is a rarity. So like running a marathon, there's a lot of people who run marathons, but if you, you know really cut to it, it's probably, you know, less than 10% of the population. So I kind of look at the blue like that, except a little bit, you know, less common that I had an opportunity um, to take the field in a sport that I absolutely love and, you know, play and receive the highest honor that I could have in a country that wasn't mine. Right. And I didn't, I'd never, I didn't have to get on the field that game. I earned, you earn a blue when you step on the field for the blues game. So, you know, if I were injured and didn't play in that game, I wouldn't have earned my blue despite playing the entire season. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an honor. It's something that I'm really proud of and, you know, any chance I get like to talk about. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. You've earned it. Well, Renee, thank you so much for sharing your big story. You're welcome. Thank you for uh, having me on your show. Oh, happy to do it. Well, thank you to everybody for listening. If you ever want to reach me, I'm at MikeMalone5A at gmail.com. And I'm on Twitter at BC Mike Malone. And if you like my big story, subscribe to us, write us a positive review. Thank you to Rosanna Bullion for designing the My Big Story logo. Thank you to Brian Doherty for writing our theme song. And thank you again to Renee for sharing her story. Until next time, stay well, everybody. Bye.